continuing now our study of the Westminster Confession of Faith. We've considered various topics. Most recently, we had looked at the assurance of grace and salvation, as well as the perseverance of the saints. And now comes the topic of the law of God. Paragraph 1 states, God gave to Adam a law as a covenant of works by which he bound him and all his posterity to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience, promising life upon the fulfilling and threatening death upon the breach of it, endued him and endued him with power and ability to keep it. Okay, so here we see in Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27, God gave Adam a covenant of works. We see also in chapter 2, verse 17 of Genesis, where the Lord threatens him. So there is this arrangement or this agreement that God has with man, and that this binds all the posterity of Adam, which is why men, even in their infancy and in their conception, are conceived and born in sin. God made man upright. He required that if he would do what the law said, then he would have life. We see this in Galatians 3, that there is a promise that if man would keep the law, then he would have life. And on the other hand, if man would break the law, then he would have death. The disobedience of the one man, we see this in Romans 5, leading to death. And then on the other hand, we see Christ fulfilling that promise. So the primary doctrines here in paragraph 1 of chapter 19, first, the law was given to Adam as a covenant of works. So that is the first. The law was given to Adam as a covenant of works. The second primary doctrine here is that the law binds all men to personal, exact, entire and perpetual obedience. Personal meaning you must render in your own person. Entire meaning not just some portions of what God requires, but all of what he requires. Exact meaning you cannot deviate in the least part. You must be entirely obedient to every aspect. And then the per perpetual idea meaning not just for a time, but for all time in your life. And then the third primary doctrine, Adam was able to keep the law thus given. So this was not beyond his capacity as a creature. Some people believe that the inability of man to keep a covenant of works is based off of his being finite. That's not true. It's actually because of sin that man is incapable of keeping the law of God for salvation. Uh, rather than being a creaturely problem, it is an apostasy problem. Man has turned his back on God, has left the Lord's ways, and walked in his own ways, but he was made upright with the ability to keep this covenant of works. Paragraph 2. This law after his fall, continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness, and as such was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in Ten Commandments, 
and written in two tables, the first four commandments containing our duty towards God, and the other six our duty to man. Okay, so the scriptures <clears throat> tell us about these Ten Commandments. In Exodus 34, 1, there's a specific reference to these Ten Commandments written on two tables of stone. There, Also there we see that uh, this is a perfect rule of righteousness. That's the first doctrine, primary doctrine here. The law was delivered as a perfect rule of righteousness on Mount Sinai. So what's happening here is that our confession is recognizing that there is a primordial law written on the heart of man and that that, what we might call the natural law, that natural law is the same as far as content as the Ten Commandments. So the two are identical as far as the content, what God gave to Adam as a covenant of works, the law written on his heart at the beginning, and the law of the Ten Commandments. Those are the same. There may be ways in which it's applied differently or understood differently. The law of nature is understood by virtue of being human. The law of the Ten Commandments is understood by virtue of God publishing it, writing it with his own finger, having that recorded in Scripture for us. But they are the same as far as the content. And fallen man doesn't understand the natural law like he should. He has a dim outline of that ancient or primordial law. Okay, the second primary doctrine in paragraph 2 is that this law is the Ten Commandments in two tables. So, ten words, two tables. And then the third primary doctrine is that the first table has our duties to God and the second table has our duties to man. Our Lord refers to this under the rubric of the two great commandments. He's inquired of as to what is the great commandment of the law. And he identifies that loving the Lord your God, this is in Matthew 22, loving the Lord your God, that is the first and great commandment. And the second is to love your neighbor as you love yourself. So these are the two categories of law, the first table and the second table, the first meaning the first in priority as well as in order. In other words, God gave the first four commandments before he gave the second, but also the prioritization. The first table is the most important because it respects God in whose image man is made. So the second is like unto it because it comes from the same source and ultimately it all relates back to God. When David committed murder, and he committed adultery, he said against thee, thee only have I done this evil. So he's the primary reference of all sin is God himself. He's the primarily offended party, even though indirectly that offense comes through the creature or through man that we sin against. But in any case, and we'll look at this in Ephesians chapter 6, the apostle says that honor thy father and thy mother is the first commandment with promise. And what he's referring to there is the first commandment of the second table. Because there's a promise in the second commandment that says that if you love him and keep his commandments, he will bless to a thousand generations. That's a promise. So he's not referring to the Ten Commandments as a whole. He's referring to the first commandment of the second table that contains a promise. And so we see then the two tables of the law. First 
as our duties to God and the second to man. Paragraph 3. Beside this law, commonly called moral, God was pleased to give to the people of Israel as a church under age ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances, partly of worship, prefiguring Christ, his graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits, and partly holding forth diverse instructions of moral duties, all which ceremonial laws are now abrogated under the New Testament. Okay, so first primary doctrine is that ceremonial laws were given in addition to moral laws for gospel purposes. Ceremonial laws were given in addition to moral law for gospel purposes. Now, a couple of things. Um, I want to give you a phrase that will help you to think through the laws of the Old Testament. And that phrase is that an unchangeable reason for a law makes a law unchangeable. An unchangeable reason for a law makes a law unchangeable. Well, what do I mean by that? What is the reason of a law? Well, it's identifying here for us, God gave to the people of Israel as a church under age. That's the reason God gave them these specific types of laws. That's a reason that changes because the church could grow to full maturity in time. So as a church under age, that's the reason God gave them these ceremonies. So when they grow to full maturity, then of course the reason for the law is expired, and therefore the law itself expires so far as it reflects that reason. So one of the things you see is that God addresses the ancient people of Israel in various ways, and when that address is made, if it respects those things that are unique to them, then the reason of the law terminates when that specific church under age is no longer in operation. So, in any case, there's something to think about. They're also, for gospel purposes, they're prefiguring, they're typifying, and a type is where one thing represents something else. A lower thing represents a higher, a physical, a spiritual, an Old Testament thing representing a New Testament thing. It talks about uh, ordinances that were typical. And that means there are typical persons in the Old Testament. This historical person represents Christ, Joseph being an instance. He is hated by his brethren, betrayed by them, They plan his death, conspire to kill him, he's sold into slavery, he descends down, he rises up to rule over the world. This is all prefiguring as a historic person, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But this is talking about ordinances, things that God established for their worship. And it's telling us that those things that God established for their worship prefigured Christ to come. And how is that? Well, we looked that... In Ephesians 5, Christ is a sacrifice, well-pleasing to God, an aroma that's acceptable to God. Well, what does that mean? That means that when they offered sacrifice in the Old Testament, it prefigured Christ. It said there is a sacrifice coming with which God will be well-pleased 
like you're pleased when you smell the pleasing aroma of a steak cooking, God is going to be pleased with his sacrifice. Also, Christ is called the Passover, sacrificed for us. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. What does that mean? Well, it means that the sacrifice of the Passover, by which the people were redeemed from Egypt and did not have to have their firstborn killed, points ahead to a sacrifice whose blood would redeem us from bondage and by whose stripes we would be healed and that we and our children would have the promise of eternal life, much like Israel had the promise of temporal life being delivered out of Egypt and from the death that would be inflicted by the angel there. And we also see this in the book of Hebrews, chapter 9 and chapter 10. The law had a shadow of the good things to come, but Christ is the substance. All these things tell us that these ordinances told us things about the actions of Christ, his sufferings, and the benefits that we receive through faith in him, such as redemption, the forgiveness of sins, eternal life, all typified by the physical life, the physical redemption. That's what a type does. It points ahead to a spiritual truth that is greater than the thing actually going on there. Um, And then it says that they partly hold forth diverse instructions of moral duties. They had a duty to worship God, but God, as the sovereign legislator, determined how their worship would happen. So in the wisdom of God, he could determine a moral duty while teaching a typological truth. He could do that. And he could combine those two together such that their conscience was morally bound to obey and their faith was bound to see Christ represented in those laws. So, there were gospel purposes. And then second primary doctrine is that these ceremonial laws are now abrogated under the New Testament. Now, abrogation means that it no longer abides as a moral authority. Okay, so we're not bound to observe it. It does not mean that it's abrogated as to the doctrinal content. That would be ridiculous. It still stands in that regard. But it's abrogated so far as a moral conduct obliging Christians. Okay, and we see this especially in Ephesians 2 and Colossians 2, where the ceremonies of the law are referred to as handwriting of ordinances that God nailed them to the cross and that the substance of those shadows is Christ himself, his body being crucified. So that the reason for the law is to typify Christ yet to come. Christ has come, therefore the reason of the law says you shouldn't observe it anymore. So that's very important to understand. And the apostles stress this point that if you take up these ceremonies again, it's like you're crucifying our Lord a second time. You're pretending as if he hasn't been crucified already. By acting out all the types and shadows, it would be like someone um, wants to, you're taking your kids on a trip and you see a sign that says, you know, 50 miles this way to your destination. Big signs. And you were to stop yourself and say, well, the place we want to go is 50 miles up the road, but I see a sign that points us to that thing. Let's stop and enjoy the sign. Let's stop right here. And let's stay here for the rest of the day. It would probably be cheaper, right? Because you're going to go to an amusement park. It's going to cost you a thousand bucks, whatever. And then popcorn is going to cost you $20 for a little tiny thing of popcorn. So you're going to stay here under the sign. Would that fulfill the goal that you had in setting up the trip? Of course not, because you've stopped short of the substance that the sign points you to. So these laws, when Christians go back to observe them, 
are saying, I don't want the substance of Christ. I want the shadows of his body cast by him down into the Old Testament. I want those things. And God says, no, you can't have those anymore. They're not for you. The reason of those laws is fulfilled, and therefore we don't observe them in that way. Though we can learn many good things from them, as we saw with the angels desiring to look into the things of the gospel, and I think it was Ephesians 2, but that idea that right there on the mercy seat, you have the two angels faced in, looking down at the mercy seat. They wanted to look into those things. That was a type in the ordinances of the Old Testament of a truth concerning the gospel and the angelic interest in the gospel. Okay, so that's the ceremonies in paragraph 3. Now paragraph 4. To them also, as a body politic, he gave sundry judicial laws, which expired together with the state of that people not obliging any other now, further than the general equity thereof may require. Okay, so God, in his great wisdom, was the legislative body for Israel as their king. He was their lawgiver in the political state. Now, for all the other Gentile nations, God was not their legislator in that way. They legislated for themselves through various means. And in the New Testament, when we have uh, Christian nations, nations that have come out of the darkness of heathenism into the light of the gospel, there is a specific way that God relates to them. And it's not in the same direct legislative way. So he allows them, you might say, some freedom in those matters where he restricted the freedom of Israel. So what he's talking about here, as a body politic. Now, does that body politic still exist? Does the reason of these laws still adhere? No, because that body was destroyed. In fact, Jesus said it would be. So that that body is terminated. There is no more nation of Israel. That body politic is done. And to that body politic, he gave these sundry judicial laws. And when that state expired, then that law system expired. So first primary doctrine Judicial laws were given to Israel as a body politic. That's the first primary doctrine. These judicial laws that our confession is referring to were given to them as a political body. The second primary doctrine is that those laws expired with that political state. That's the second, is that the state being the primary thing and the reason for those laws... Once that state ends, the reason for those laws ends. And then the third primary doctrine is that the general equity is the extent that they apply to modern states. And that's also true of individuals, families, churches. But the context being the political or forensic laws will make application to the state. Now, um, just something to explain. Our Lord in Matthew 5, he refers to how the law is permanent, that you could get rid of heaven and earth before you could get rid of these laws, and that those who observe the least of his commandments will be called great in the kingdom, and those who despise those laws and cast them out will be called the least. In other words, they'll be excluded from his kingdom. They will not take part in the kingdom of God. Now, 
in the New Testament, you actually find that some of these political laws, forensic laws, are applied to the New Testament church. They're applied or assumed to be standing and authoritative. Let me give you an example. 1 Corinthians 9, which our confession cites, you have the ox treading out the corn. That's a political statute about the duty of an owner of an animal to feed his animal while his animal works. And Paul applies that to the paying of pastors. That if you ask a minister to work for you, you should be willing to pay him because he's like the ox. And if God would take care of an ox, it stands to reason that he would take care of a human. So you must pay your laborers, whether in secular calling or in the ministry of the gospel. So he takes that merely political law and he applies it to an ecclesiastical circumstance. The same could be said in 1 Corinthians 5. The man who had his father's wife, he was to be excluded from the fellowship of the godly based upon a political statute given to the nation of Israel concerning the marriages and what was forbidden and what was allowed within Israel because, and this is the kicker here, because the equity of those laws was general, not particular. So if a law attaches to the political state of Israel, and that's the reason for it, and the political state of Israel expires, that law expires. If, however, this is, this is very important, if, however, the law attaches to the Ten Commandments, can the Ten Commandments be abrogated or expire? No. And therefore, any law that attaches to it isn't being described here. This is only describing those laws of particular right which have some general equity attached to them or some part that is equitable for all men. The particular part expires, the general part remains. Those laws that attach to the Ten Commandments are covered under the section on the moral law, which we'll look at in a moment. But this idea of general equity is 100% in any law attaching to the moral law and in some measure applicable to these unique forensic statutes for Israel. And that's very important because some people will say all political laws of ancient Israel are what it's describing here, but that's not true. Because some of the political laws of ancient Israel were moral in nature. And let me give you an instance. Our Lord says in Matthew 15 that the Pharisees had set aside the commandment of God for the sake of their traditions. And under the commandment of God, he includes two things. First, honor thy father and thy mother. That's the fifth commandment. Second, under this word of one commandment, the commandment of God, he includes, he that curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. Now that's a forensic law, that's a political law, that's a judicial law that does not attach to the state of Israel. He says it attaches to the fifth commandment because he considers those two commandments to be one. In other words, the death penalty for striking your parents or cursing your parents is a moral statute, not a political statute of Israel. It adheres to the moral law. Samuel Rutherford put it this way, if a, 
if political law of Israel is a fence around the moral law, then because the moral law never goes away, the fence never goes away. If a specific political law was a fence to the unique circumstances of Israel, well, of course, once that nation collapses, all those laws go with it, unless there's some moral principle embedded in it. But if there's no moral principle embedded in it, it doesn't apply to Gentiles, and you can't revive it without Judaizing. Nor can you get rid of those political statutes that are moral in nature without being heathenish, without being lawless and wicked and disobedient to the moral law. So this is very important. Uh, One of our theologians from back in the days said that if a person was punishable uh, under the statutes of Moses by death, then that's not a unique judicial law for Israel. Because why, how could God say, kill someone for something that's a trifle? Trifle attached to their political nation and their unique status. He's going to tell people, put them to death for that? Of course not. If it's that big of a deal, then it attaches to them as men, not as Jews. That's another way of thinking of it. Does this law address the Jews as Jews? In which case, it doesn't apply to me as a Gentile. Does this law... Does it address them as men? Well, in that case, it has to apply to me because I'm a man just like the Jews are. So the nature of the law, the reason of the law, determines whether it's immutable or whether it's mutable. And if it's mutable, then God has the right to abrogate or he has the right to make it perpetual. But then you look for a positive institution where he makes it perpetual as opposed to knowing that it's embedded in the light of nature. All right, Casey, any questions before we move on respecting any of that part? No. Okay. Or any of the previous paragraphs? No? Okay. All right, paragraph five. The moral law doth forever bind all men, as well justified persons as others, to the obedience thereof, and that not only in regard of the matter contained in it, but also in respect of the authority of God, the creator who gave it. Neither doth Christ in the gospel any way dissolve, but much strengthen this obligation. Okay, now the moral law, it says forever binds all men. So this is our first primary doctrine. The moral law binds all men at all times in every spiritual condition. All men, all times, all spiritual conditions. So that would be before the fall, after the fall, after redemption, after glorification. The moral law binds in every spiritual condition. All times would be from the first age of man when he was first created, till the days of Moses, till the days of David, till the days of Christ, till our day, on till the end of time and into eternity, all times. All men, meaning Jews and Gentiles. So that's the idea of the moral law. Now, the scriptures are very clear. For example, Romans 13 tells us that he who um, loves his neighbor does no ill to his neighbor. And then it lists the second table of the law, summary of the second table, and shows us that love fulfills the law. It's the keeping of those commandments. Also, we'll look at Ephesians 6. This week, where the Apostle Paul says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. 
Honor thy father and thy mother. This is the first commandment of promise, that it may go well with thee, and thou mayest live long upon the earth. So there he says not just the precept to honor your parents, but also the promise attached to the precept. Both of those bind Gentiles, is what he's saying. And so you see, well, that's that law addresses them not as Jews, that addresses them as men. Now Paul does shift something that's unique to the Jews. In the Old Testament, it talks about the land that the Lord thy God giveth thee. In the New Testament, it talks about the earth as a whole. So it shifts the emphasis from a merely Jewish emphasis on the land of Palestine, the promised land, to the earth for all nations. Every nation is obliged by the fifth commandment, and therefore the apostle shifts the promise of it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit from the land of Palestine to all the earth. And so that's a distinction because the moral law itself and the promise of it going well with you, those still bind all men, but the unique promise concerning the land, that doesn't bind all men. It's not held out to all men in that sense. But here you see the moral law binding all men at all times in the condition of being a saved Gentile child, that applies to you. A Christian child in a Christian family, part of God's covenant, they have the fifth commandment as well as the Jews in ancient times. All right, then the second primary doctrine here is that both the matter of and authority giving the moral law reinforce obedience to it. The matter of and the authority giving the moral law reinforce obedience to it. Now, the matter of a law is the thing that it requires by the language used. What does this say? The substance or the matter that that it contains. And the Ten Commandments, the moral law, the substance of it is love God and love your neighbor. And then it explains, well, how do I know if I love God? How do I know if I love my neighbor? Well, look to the precepts of the Ten Commandments and ask yourself, do you do those things in your thoughts and your words and your deeds? If you do, then you love your neighbor. So that's the matter or the substance of the law, but also the authority giving the law. Who gave the law? Well, it wasn't Moses. It was God himself. He wrote it with his own fingers, unlike the rest of the precepts, which God said, Moses, I want you to write some things down as my secretary, as my amanuensis. You write down my words, tell them to the people. The Ten Commandments were not that way. God wrote them with his own finger. He wrote them on the heart of Adam. And he promised that when the new covenant would be instituted, he'd write those precepts on the laws of his people. So this is a very unique set of laws written on the heart of Adam and on all men by nature, even in their fallen condition, though corrupted by sin, still written there by God then written on the tables of the Ten Commandments with the finger of God, and then written on the hearts of believers in the New Testament. This is God, the author of these Ten Commandments. All right, and then third primary doctrine concerning the moral law is that Christ strengthens the obligation of believers to the moral law. Christ strengthens the moral obligation we have. In fact, Matthew 5, he says, if you don't keep these laws, you're not part of my kingdom. 
Romans 3.31 asks, does faith destroy the law? Does it abrogate the moral commandments of Scripture? And he says, no, by faith we establish the law. We set it on a foundation that is permanent and reliable by faith. So the law is not the enemy of the Christian except if we seek justification by it. Then we're severed from the grace of the gospel. We're fallen from grace. If we're seeking to be justified by keeping commandments, you cannot be justified by commandments and by grace through faith. So the two are incompatible. But because God recreates us in his image, the gospel does not abrogate. It reinforces the law. All right, paragraph six. And I've divided this into two portions because it's a nice big chunk. So we'll just take the two portions separately. Paragraph six in the first part. Although true believers be not under the law as a covenant of works to be thereby justified or condemned, yet is it of great use to them as well as to others in that as a rule of life informing them of the will of God and their duty, it directs and bind them to walk accordingly, discovering also the sinful pollutions of their nature, heart, and lives, so as examining themselves thereby, they may come to further conviction of humiliation for and hatred against sin, together with a clearer sight of the need they have of Christ and the perfection of his obedience. Okay, so here... A couple of major points. First major doctrine, or primary doctrine, is that the law is not a covenant of works to true believers. The law is not a covenant of works to true believers. Now, just as a sidelight, it is to unbelievers, but not to believers. Second, the law is useful to all men as a rule of life. The law is useful to all men as a rule of life. And something to think about, the scriptures don't say that because wicked people can't be justified by the law, therefore it's not a rule they should follow. That's how some people get confused sometimes. Well, you can't legislate morality, they will say, which is total trash because all legislation is morality applied. Anytime you make a law, you're saying there's some moral standard we want everybody to obey. Whatever that is, you can legislate immorality by contravening God's moral law, or you can legislate morality, which is God's moral law. Your choice. And choose wisely because nations that don't enforce on unbelievers the moral law are actually ruining themselves and eroding their foundation. So the law is useful to all men as a rule of life. And that means your personal life, your family life, your social life, your civil life, your ecclesiastical life. It's a rule for every aspect. That's what it means when it says rule of life. It means every part of your life. All right. Third, the law has evangelical uses to demonstrate man's need of Christ. The law has evangelical uses 
to demonstrate man's need of Christ. And particularly, this is talking about believers, that by the struggle with the law, when Paul in Romans 7 is struggling with his sin, the end of that passage is not the end of chapter 7, it's the beginning of chapter 8, where he goes into the greatness of the gospel and how there's no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. That starts with Paul wrestling with his own sin as a believer and seeing that his, his mind delights in the law of God and the inward man he approves of it and delights in it as David did in the Psalms, but he finds this law at work in his members, bringing him into captivity. And then the resolution of that is there is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. God justifies who is he that condemns. Romans 8 is predicated on the believer struggling with the law as a condemnation for the sins he continues to commit. So there's an evangelical use of the law. Now just something to say very briefly, as there is an evangelical use of the law, so there's a legalistic use of the gospel. And what I mean by that is, people can preach the gospel as a covenant of works. And they'll do that by, your faith is this new work of the gospel. This is Arminianism and Romanism. Your faith is like a new work. And so in order to be justified, do these things. Walk forward, get baptized, do, pay your tithes, take the sacraments, come to church on Easter, whatever. Like they'll make these new laws. They call it the new law. That's the old law in the Old Testament. We have a new law now. So they think of the gospel as a law, in other words. So that's a legalistic preaching of the gospel. But for Christians, we understand that even the law can be turned to an evangelical use. There's an evangelical preaching of the, of the law. We preach the law for the sake of the gospel. And that's true of both justification, the need I have of the righteousness of Christ, as well as sanctification, where I realize what sins I need to repent of and what I need to put off and what I need to put on. Which you'll remember, Ephesians 4, put off, put on, what does he take up? The Ten Commandments. Let him who stole, steal no more. Right? So he's getting into details of, specifically there, the Eighth Commandment. What is the sin forbidden? What is the duty required? And then, of course, the Fifth Commandment is what we're treating in Ephesians 5, submitting yourselves to one another in the fear of God. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. Slaves, obey your masters. Masters, do the same thing to them. Like it gives us the application of the fifth commandment as the new life in Christ. And so there is a use even in sanctification of the law of God. All right, now second part of paragraph six. <clears throat> After discovering the common usage for all believers and unbelievers alike, now it is likewise of use to the regenerate to restrain their corruptions, in that it forbids sin. And the threatenings of it serve to show what even their sins deserve, and what afflictions in this life they may expect for them, although freed from the curse thereof threatened in the law. The promise of it in like manner, promises of it in like manner, show them God's approbation of obedience and what blessings they may expect upon the performance thereof. 
although not as due to them by the law as a covenant of works. So as a man's doing good and refraining from evil because the law encourageth the one and deterreth from the other is no evidence of his being under the law and not under grace. So that's kind of a mouthful here. But what this is saying is the law of God does not justify a believer, but in his sanctification, it can help to restrain the natural corruption. And the way that God works in us is he says, here's a blessing for keeping my law, and here's a curse if you don't. And because those threats and those promises are presented to a believer who trusts in God and rests in Christ, he therefore says, ah, I shouldn't do these sins because I don't want to receive the chastisement of God against these sins. I want to do these good works because there I see the approbation of God. His smile is upon these things. It's very interesting when we'll look at this in Ephesians 6 because this is a primary passage that demonstrates this truth. The apostle there says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. And then if you look at Colossians 3, I think it's verse 20, he says, Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to God. And what he's saying is, what is right is well-pleasing to God. If you correlate the two passages, anytime you do what's right, it pleases God. That's what he's saying. So the things that the law requires are right, they're just, they're good, And whatever is just and good and right pleases God. And then how do you know it pleases God? How do we experience that? Well, he says, if you do this good thing, that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long upon the earth. That's how God shows you. By blessing, by promising, I will bless you if you keep the fifth commandment. Now, when you keep the fifth commandment, you don't do it perfectly, but you do it sincerely and you grow in your obedience to that commandment, then God says, I don't owe you this because you're an unprofitable servant. I'm not going to give it to you as a covenant of works. Even if you did everything required of you, you couldn't say that you've added anything to God. So he doesn't, does, he doesn't have to pay you back for something. But he says, I want to encourage you to do the good. I want you to feel in your own experience that my promise is good and how I delight in it, I'm going to encourage you with these blessings. And so that's the one side. And the other side is, if it's wrong, it displeases God. So he's going to make you suffer for it because he loves you. He's not going to let you get away with going on in your sin. So he's going to recover you by saying, I'm going to chasten you. If you don't delight yourself in my law and keep my commandments, I'm going to punish you. And it's very interesting, the passage that is cited is Leviticus 26. If you remember back in Leviticus, at the end of the book, same as Deuteronomy, God has all these curses and all these blessings that he sets before the people. If you despise me, I'll curse you. I'll make your enemies high above you. I'll sink you down so low. And if you resist me, I'll punish your sin seven times more, Leviticus 26 says. And if you keep resisting me, seven times more. And if you keep resisting me, seven times more, until eventually you'll be in captivity, you'll cry out and say, oh, now we remember. And then he says, I'll still save you because I'm good. So he has all these threats. 
And he has all these promises. And the goal of those is to let believers know God delights in what is good and God hates what is evil. And so should I. So allow me, God, by your grace, more and more to keep these commandments so that I can delight in what pleases you. And the reason why they point this out is the antinomians said, if you listen to those promises of the law and you obey just because you're going to get something good, you don't really love God. You just want things from him. That's not true. That's not true at all. If it was true, God wouldn't tell us, here's a promise of good if you obey. He would not say that because then he'd be leading us into sin and he's not. He's leading us into loving him. And that's how God uses the law. Antinomians make everything about justification by works. But that's not what the Bible's about. Is there a condemnation of justification by works? Yes. Is there a free justification in Christ taught? Yes. Is it the only thing the Bible teaches? No. And that's what we're saying here. Just because a believer says, I don't want to get chastened, so I'll stop doing evil or won't do it before I fall into it. And on the other hand says, God is pleased with this work and therefore I'm going to do good to be blessed. That's not proving that you're under the law and you're not under grace. No, the apostles themselves say, well, do you want to die? Then don't profane the Lord's table because that's a violation of God's law. It's taking his name in vain. You take the Lord's name and you go to his table and you do it in profane, in a profane way. God might kill you. He might make you sick. Now that's a threat, isn't it? And so the apostle is trying to warn the Corinthians, don't take the name of our Lord Jesus Christ in vain. Then on the other hand, children obey your parents and the Lord for this is right, that it may go well with thee, he says. He applies the fifth commandment. And there he says, do the right thing because of the blessing that comes to you, not just for the blessing, but also for the blessing. That's not proving that we're under a covenant of works. Okay. So first primary doctrine after all that to do. The law is useful to the regenerate man to restrain corruptions. And then the second primary doctrine is that its promises show blessings graciously given. And notice the wisdom of God. There is the corruption of man that needs to be restrained, so God threatens corrupt behavior. And then there is the putting on of the new man that needs to be encouraged, so God says a blessing on that side. That's very wise. You want somebody to restrain from their evil, then you should threaten them with some punishment. If you want somebody to delight in the good, then you should encourage them and bless them for doing it. So God is the best parent. This is why parents must imitate God in this. They must discountenance and chasten the bad, and they must countenance and encourage the good, just like God does. He promises to bless the good. He promises to curse the wicked because he's encouraging refraining from your corruption and putting on the new man. And that's exactly what we're talking about here. All right, then paragraph seven, where our confession reads, neither are the aforementioned uses of the law contrary to the grace of the gospel. Now the aforementioned uses would be those that are universally applicable to believers and unbelievers 
and then those that are unique to believers. Both of those uses that we looked at in phase one and phase two of paragraph six, neither of them are contrary to the grace of the gospel, but do sweetly comply with it. The spirit of Christ subduing and enabling the will of man to do that freely and cheerfully, which the will of God revealed in the law requireth to be done. Now, this is exactly what God promised in the passages of the Old Testament that talk about the new, is that he would cause us to walk in his statutes. He would write his law upon our hearts. This is Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31. So, of course, when the New Testament comes about, we actually find them quoting passages in the Old Testament saying, this is the fulfillment of this. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. I will write my laws upon their minds. We read this in Hebrews chapter 8. Okay, so the first primary doctrine, gospel grace, does not oppose the previously mentioned uses of the law. Gospel grace does not oppose the previously mentioned uses of the law. Now, another way to think about this is the phrase, grace perfects nature. That's another way to think about this. The natural institution, when God made man, was to write the law upon his heart. So when God regenerates man, is he going to abrogate the law? Of course not. That's ridiculous. He's going to restore the original nature of man. He's going to perfect the original nature of man. He's not going to get rid of it. So gospel grace does not oppose those uses of the law previously mentioned. And then second, the spirit of Christ makes the godly willing to obey God's revealed law. The spirit of Christ makes the godly willing to obey God's revealed law. Now just a a thought or two about this. There is the world that God made as it exists. And then there is the subjective person who lives in the world. You know, their personal feelings and perception of the world. And what the gospel does is it unites those things in a closer and closer union as a person is made more holy. So let me illustrate. Um, God created everything in nature to glorify him, to give him glory. The sun, the moon, the stars, man, the animals, everything exists for the glory of God. As a person is converted and grows in holiness, they become more glorifying to God, just like all the rest of the creation does. When man's in his state of sin, he's in disharmony with the creation, because the creation exists to glorify God, And he's not doing it, but he's the pinnacle of God's creation here on earth. And he's he's refusing to do what he was made to do. But once he's converted, he more and more is conformable to that which really exists, which is God glorifying himself in the universe by all creation and his providence and the work of redemption and his work of judgment. He's glorifying himself. So we subjectively... Once we're converted to Christ, do what is objectively right. See that? It's objectively right whether you do it or not. 
But as God changes and conforms us, we more and more put off the old man and put on the new. And what does he call that? Being renewed in the image of him that created him. Back to the original order of creation and knowledge and holiness of the truth. That's the image we're being restored to. So the more godly we've become, the more human we become. Let me put it that way. You're less human, the less godly you are. Unregenerate people are subhuman. They're like zombies. They're like walking dead. They're not being human. So humanists are not actually humanists because they pose a law order based off of man's fallen nature, which is subhuman or anti-human. Whereas the gospel restores the image of God and makes us truly human. And that's what it's saying. When Christ works in our heart, the law is right in the external objective world. It tells us the standard of righteousness. But finally now, by Christ's spirit in us, we are made conformable to that law. We delight in it and are conformed to it more and more as time goes on. That's the promise of the gospel. I will write the law upon your heart. I'll sprinkle clean water upon you, Ezekiel 36, and cleanse you from all your idols and filthiness. And then I'll cause you to walk in my statutes. That which you did not have the capacity to do before, you will now have the ability to do and a cheerful, loving willingness to do my will. All right, any questions about the second part of this study, Casey? Uh, Just maybe some help and clarification uh, for the fifth part. Mm -hmm. Um, The moral law that forever bind all as well as justified persons as others to the obedience thereof. Mm-hmm. And it uses, uh, bases that statement upon 1 John 2, 7, and 8. Uh-huh. And that was just something that, like, I don't get it. He says, a new commandment, I'm not giving you mm-hmm. the old commandment. But then he concludes it saying, here's a new commandment. Yes, good question. So when you think about people being justified by Christ and people... Um, looking back to the old law, the law published at at Mount Sinai, and you say, is that the same commandment that I have? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Is that the same commandment that they had? Yes, it is. It's an old commandment. So there, there is a respect or a relationship of the law as published on Sinai, and as John is explaining it in 1 John, that is identical. They're the same thing. When he says that Christians ought to love one another, as Christ teaches in John 15, 16, 17, when Christ teaches on love, 14, I think, 15, 16, 17, maybe it's just 14 through 16, but in any case, he says the same thing, that this is the same commandment you've always had, but it's new. And the respect in which it's new is this. He says, uh, Greater love hath no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And then he says, I'm the pattern for your love, whereby you sacrifice yourself for your brethren. Is it the same commandment to love your brother? Yes. Is it a new commandment because to it is added Christ's example? Yes. So it's both an old commandment and it's a new commandment. And it illustrates 
that this moral law binds those who are justified as well as those who are not. If they're under the covenant of works, it's a condemning law. If we're under the covenant of grace, it is a directing law. It shows us the way to be conformable to the image of Christ. Because Christ loved his brethren, that is us, by laying down his life for us. And he says the same thing about washing the feet of the disciples. I've shown you how to love one another. And I'm going to show you even more because I'm going to lay my life down for you. And so in that respect, we would say, in a certain sense, it's identical. In another sense, it's not. In a certain sense, it's old. In another sense, it's new. So I think that's what John is getting at in that context. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Any other questions? Or was that? Uh, That was it. Okay. All right, let's close our.